consider as many things have gone on before us. We come into a new year, as we've already noted in, in the last week or so. We wonder what in the world is coming next. You know, we, keep, we hear things, we think things settle, we think things rise, we think they get past them, you move on from this. One war leads to another war, one conflict to another, one virus to another. Again, it seems like there is no end to these things. But we stop and wonder, when we get through something, don't we say, okay, what's next? Maybe in life, even we accomplish certain levels of oh, job or education or something, and we stop and then ask ourselves, okay, what now? Because generally the things that we might have had in mind don't always work out exactly the way we think they're going to, do they? But that's where we're going today. And the question before us is this question. After this, what next? I want you to turn to an Old Testament story. We're right in the middle of a story, actually, in the part that I want to read with you in verses 1 through 4 of 1 Samuel, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 2. Because the story goes back to the time when Saul is made king. You remember the people came to Samuel and wanted a king for Israel. Ultimately, Saul became the king. Saul began serving the Lord, began serving the nation. But along the way, Saul made a lot of mistakes. Made a large one that turned the Lord against him. Ultimately, someone else was to be anointed to become the king. Saul had trouble after trouble. And David was in the wings waiting. David had been anointed. David was to be the king. Saul knew it too. We'll say some more about that in a moment. But ultimately Saul and leading his warriors, his army against the Philistines, along with a couple of his sons, died in battle. A valiant warrior, a strong king, now a man of some years and age, but still in some ways a good leader. So the word gets back to David and some things happen and now what's going to happen next? Saul is dead. Read this, verse 1, and it happened. It happened after this that David inquired of the Lord saying, shall I go up to the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. David said, where shall I go up? And he said, to Hebron. So David went up there and his two wives also, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. And David brought up the men who were with him, every man with his household, so they dwelt in the cities of Hebron. Then the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. Really, this is only the beginning. We'd have to read a whole lot more of the story because this is only a part of the kingdom that David is, is made king at this point. But that's where our story is going to go. And the question is there. We see what's happened. What's now? Some of you old timers. Yeah, old timers. Will remember the movie Spartacus. Near the end of the movie, the Romans take the gladiator leader. Who had been a leader of a rebellion against Rome. That man Spartacus. And after winning the battle and gathering the people together, and as the movie depicts it, and probably not completely accurately, but at least it's a dramatic depiction, 
the Romans want to find that particular man. They want to find that leader. And so they begin to search for him and they say, we want Spartacus. And they start looking for him. And the closer they get, then the men around begin to say, wait, I'm Spartacus. No, I'm Spartacus. No, I'm Spartacus. And their line is repeated several times in the past 60 years because each of them then dies in the movie, dies that horrible death. But you know, that's not the only time we can go through history and we can read something like this, whether fictitious or real. But similar lines of heroism have made it into movie lore over the years, and we, we repeat those lines from time to time. Maybe not so, not so ex, uh, acceptable in some of the movies and everything, but I always think about Doc Holliday. I'm your Huckleberry in the movie Tombstone. Then there was Robert the Bruce, as Mel Gibson depicts him in his movie of the Scottish Rebels, when Robert the Bruce says, you have bled with Wallace, now bleed with me. We like cries of heroism. We like to draw back. We like those things that call us to remember. Well, generally, these are just movie lines that are made up and trying to make an effect along the way. They do exactly that. They catch our attention. They draw us to events that we believe have transpired. And while they may not be exactly accurate, they do draw upon a true picture of what may have happened. There is real history, though. There is real history, and we've been called to action by real history. Growing up with Texans as parents, I learned the line early on, remember the Alamo. But that's not the only time Texans used that line. But in 1898, there was the cry, remember the Maine, which brought us into the Spanish-American War and the war against Spain. In World War II, there was the call out in the Pacific War, remember Pearl Harbor. These are not the only lines that have been used along the way, sometimes in smaller accomplishments, smaller remembrances, but they, the idea of calling back and remembering and holding on to these things. But each time they are tied to the idea of what's coming next. That's why we need them. That's why we use them, because we wonder where are we going with this and what's coming next in that regard. I think even as Christians, we begin to wonder what's coming next. I can look back over the years personally, and I can say I couldn't have imagined the state that we would find the religious world today. I couldn't imagine the state that I would find in the church today that I do. And yet we are exactly where we are. But it makes me wonder, what is it that's coming next? But I think if we look at our times as a kind of microcosm, a small segment of human experience, we may see several things that help push us forward and draw more positive action on our part. We may not have a well-developed cry. We may not have that movie style, that dramatic line to throw out at people. We may not even have a clear picture of the enemies we are called to fight. And so we may be still wondering, what's next? So I invite you to go back then to David. Go back with me to David for just a little while. We think and love the hero, we think about and love the heroism of David. We love what he did and what he accomplished in many ways. We even overlook some of the big mistakes he made in his life. And yet, David had some quandaries in his life too. 
The line is, the king is dead. Long live the king. That's where David found himself. With the death of Saul, a new king was needed in Israel. There were some who were ready to take the throne. Saul's a surviving son of Saul was ready to jump in and take the throne and actually did for a time. But I want us to think for just a moment that as I began to say a little while ago, in spite of all his shortcomings, Saul had brought the tribes together. He'd been a uniting force for those 12 tribes. He'd brought them together under one governmental rule. For under the judges, they had been a little bit disjointed. They had been a little bit separatist in their own way. Samuel came as close to drawing the people together as any of the leaders did. But Samuel was old, and Samuel would soon pass from this earth. And so Saul is made the king, and we recognize he does draw the people together. He is a valiant leader and soldier and fighter for the cause. And the heir apparent now, even Jonathan, is dead. And to leave that place in absence would leave disorder. There would be those who would want to rise and take that position, some outside of Saul's family, some outside the line of succession. There would be disorder. There would be disruption. Maybe the tribes would pull off to their own and the kingdom or the nation would lose its entity, its desire to be what it has been for a time. Well, Saul had done all that he knew how to do during the time he was king in one of his greatest missteps to prevent David from becoming king. And so here's where David stands. Living among the Philistines, David was somewhat protected from Saul, for Saul had been after him. But David was still aware he was next in line. And Saul had been aware that David's status with him would prevent his family from keeping the kingdom. And like I said, Saul had had pursued and tried to kill David multiple times. One time, there's almost a humorous story where it seems like David's on one side of the mountain and Saul's on the other, and each is kind of moving and almost going in a circular fashion around the mountain, it sounds like, as David would somewhat run from Saul. But we might wonder, why in the world would we want to make David a king when he's afraid of the king that's on the throne? But you know, also, Jonathan, so close to David, knew that David would have the throne one day. And so when Saul and his two sons die fighting the Philistines on Mount Gilboa, the time has come. For David had already been chosen by God in the great story where Samuel goes to the home of Jesse and there goes through and looks at all those brothers, those elder brothers, finally coming down to David, the youngest of them all, and finding he's the one that God wants. He'd been anointed by Samuel, but that doesn't mean that everyone wants to be under his charge, that everyone wants David to be the king. Just because he's been anointed by God doesn't mean that everybody's just going to say, okay, that's the way it is, and we're going to go with that. And even David made no attempt, made no direct attempt to take the throne. He didn't go in and try to usurp the throne, to do away with Saul in any way. In fact, chances that he had to take away the life of Saul, and he could have many times along the way, he didn't do so. He should, believed he should not raise his hand, as he says, against the Lord's anointed, 1 Samuel 26 and 23. He would not raise his hand against Saul because he believed that was God's anointed or appointed king on that occasion. David would readily wait. He would wait in the wings. He would have served Saul valiantly. He would have stood by his side even to the day of his death. 
And when word came to David that Saul had been killed and that Amalekite, the young Amalekite man that came to him and said he put an end to Saul's life, which seemed to be waning at his, at his own behest, the man had taken the life of Saul and David took the life of the Amalekite because he didn't believe anyone should take the life of God's anointed king. So David was chosen, but he hadn't jumped into that place. He hadn't tried to make a big thing about it. He was willing to wait. But then the time arrived. The time arrived. With Saul dead, it goes back to our point. What was David to do? And I think the wisdom of David is never more on display than it is right here. David doesn't just immediately take for granted, all right, I'm the king. I've already been anointed. I'm ready to go. Let's go. He doesn't go and challenge the nation and immediately get them behind them. David's wisdom is never more on display than it is at that moment. He could have taken the nation by force, but he didn't do it. I've got to think that David had the thought in mind that we often sing. Grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. I've got to believe that David had a great trust in God, his wisdom, his timing, his instruction, and all of that. David waited for the Lord. David leaned upon the Lord. David asked of the Lord. Before he made a move, generally, David would ask of God. Oh, yes, he made a mistake or two along the way in that regard. We see them. But generally, David trusted in God's guidance in these things. So what was he to do? He asked of God. That brings it down to you and me. That brings it down to our own question. What do we do now? I think that's probably one of the most pertinent questions any Christian ever asks himself, ever leans upon. What's next in my life? We need to ask ourselves, what's coming next for me? I think too often we just run through life just waiting to see what will happen, thinking maybe something great will happen, something good will come our way. When we should be asking the question, we might wonder why we should ask the question. Why do we need to even ask? Let's just do our best and be the best we can. Yes, I understand that. But asking the question draws our eyes with interest to what the possibilities could be. The other day I was talking to somebody who was asking a little bit, brought up some memories, asking about why I had become a preacher. I get that question asked along the way occasionally. And I tell people I didn't go to school with the intention of ever becoming a preacher. Yeah, that's what my dad wanted me to do. I understand that. And maybe some of you feel the same thing about how you got to where you are and what you did. Circumstances just kind of fell in line, and there I followed with it. Was it a good choice? Some of you are shaking your heads, no, no. <laughs> I think we can go through life and just wait and see what falls our way. And i got to say, there have been times I've been that way. Maybe you have too. But when we ask this question, what's next? It begins to widen our eyes to open that sphere of opportunity. It challenges us to think a little bit, to see what's going on around about us, to walk as Paul describes circumspectly, knowing what's going on in the world and the world around us. I often think that if I had known some of the opportunities that were possibly out there, there might have been another course. Maybe I'm glad I didn't at the time, but... 
we do need to be aware. But if we get into particulars, where are we right now? Let's think about that fellow Moses for a moment. For when you know that something ought to be done, you question what it is that you need to do. When he went to that burning bush in Exodus 3, when he was confronted by the Lord that was there, I doubt that Moses had any idea he'd be doing anything other than tending his father-in-law's sheep for the immediate future. But the Lord had something that he wanted him to do. If we consider Moses, Moses didn't know what was coming next, but as the Lord puts it on him, then Moses says, well, what am I supposed to do? And only by looking at those things can he begin to understand what exactly what was coming his way and what was he to do. Yes, we can ignore. We can be stubborn and we can ignore what's going on about us and about our business. We can go about just doing as we want to do, as we've done, and hope that things just work out in the end. Maybe that's what Moses really wanted to do. Or we can step forward and see what we can do. If you think about it, that was probably a little more closely akin to the nature of Moses. For if you just back up one chapter in Exodus, you just back up 40 years, we find a little bit different attitude in Moses when he sees one of his kinsmen being beaten by an Egyptian taskmaster. He takes the opportunity to defend and even kill the man who is abusing his fellow countrymen. He saw what he could do. He jumped in and he did it. And yes, it cost him his place. It cost him some things that probably would have been considered precious to him. But he saw what he could do and he moved forward to do it. We can step forward and see what it is we can do. Instead of waiting for somebody else to tell us what they want us to do, we can step forward and say, this is what I believe we need to do. There's a line that's thrown out there occasionally. It's been written in more than one case but it comes down to this if not now when if not me who because it's easy in our our thinking to pass along something to somebody else say well we'll let somebody else worry about that. we'll let the government worry about that we'll let the leaders worry about that in the church maybe we say we'll just let the elders deal with that we'll let the deacons mess with that when it really it is about all of us Because it's our individual lives and our individual responsibilities that are far more important than the greater of the whole brought together. Because Christian life is not lived within the confines of a building. Our Christian lives are not lived just in the times that we are together. Our Christian lives are lived in the everyday when we go to work or we face our mates at home, where we're rearing our children, where we're going to schools or whatever it is that we're doing day by day. That's where our Christian lives are lived. That's where the question becomes more important. What do we do now? If not now, when are we going to do something? For life flows quickly by and we say, I should have done something then. Well, no. We should do something now. Paul challenged the Christians in Corinth when he said in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, We then as workers together with him also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. If not me, who? 
And really, if not now, when? So I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you in looking at the, the steps that David took. And they, became, they become opportunities and steps for you and me as well. And following in those steps of David, look what he did. Where he found himself, he first sought of the approval of the Lord. Lord, what is it that I need to do? He sought the Lord's interest, the Lord's guidance, the Lord's instruction in that matter. It's not indecisiveness to seek the Lord. We're not running out there and saying, Lord, here's what I'm doing. Please bless me in doing it. It's finding out what is it that the Lord would want me to do in this case. It's the old adage from in his steps. What would Jesus do? What do we need to do in this step? That's not indecisiveness. In Acts, the 13th chapter, we find the Lord calling upon the church to separate Paul and Barnabas to go and do a particular work. And the church says, that's what we'll do then. And Paul and Barnabas join along. They sought the, the instruction and approval of the Lord in those things. But then David sought the guidance of the Lord as he moves along. He knew he was not able to govern the people by himself without God's guidance and God's instruction. If you ever read through the 119th Psalm, that longest chapter in the Bible, broken down into its various parts, again and again, what does it say? But the Word, the Word, the Word, the instruction of the Lord, the instruction of the Lord, the instruction of the Lord. Every time it's about God's Word and how important it is. He sought the guidance of the Lord. We need the guidance of the Lord. We need the instruction of that Word. It's not going to come to us by osmosis. It's not going to come to us by accident. It's not going to come to us just because we think about it. This is not the sound of music and the think method doesn't just get it. It's from seeking what God's guidance would be in any, any circumstances. Paul was strong in Corinth in part because he knew that he had the Lord along with him to guide him and instruct him. The Lord told him, I have much people in this city to draw upon one another, to draw upon our understanding of God's Word, to draw upon what God says plainly. Gives us the encouragement to know that He is with us in what we do. That's what gave Paul his courage as he wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4. He talked about other people having gone to other places in verse 16, 17, and 18. He talked about the things that he would personally face. And he said, but I could do it, for the Lord is with me, and he always will be. David sought the guidance of the Lord, and we need his guidance in what we choose and what we do today. And then thirdly, he accepted the timing of the Lord. And that may be one of the toughest of the three. We may look out and seek, what does God want me to do? We may even seek God's instruction in doing it. But I don't know about you, but I sometimes feel that God's timing doesn't always work with my timing, especially in traffic. You know what I mean, in seriousness. We want things a certain way, and we want them at a certain time, and we want them to occupy uh, us in the way that we have in our minds. But you know, David reminds us several times through the Psalms with a marvelous line about waiting on the Lord, expressed in Psalm 27, verse 14, 37, and verse 9, and 37, and verse 34. Again, David says, wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. I think sometimes we think if we express it to God, it ought to happen, it ought to happen with immediacy. We think things ought to change in exactly the way we want them to. Doesn't always work that way. I was, I was using or reading a, a World War II novel 
the other day. Most of it that's in it, I say a novel, it was a, is a, uh, an actual account and written. And in every case, many of the soldiers that were caught up in it thought that the war would end very quickly. But it went on, and it went on, and it went on. If you stop in 1941, if you start in 1941 and go to 1945, you find that's a long time for people to be enduring something like that. But there are places in the world where we see much longer events than that. And so we draw upon the old song that's sometimes been used even as an invitation song, but more as simply a reminder, one step at a time, dear Savior. Too often we want to step out in front of the Lord. We want to step out and we want to go our way and we just want the Lord to bless us in it. We tend to think it's easier to get forgiveness than permission. But David has this message reinforced to him along in his life. And so I leave you with a reminder in that regard. That when we try to run out ahead of the Lord, we make a mistake. For he first sought God's instruction and approval. He sought his guidance along the way. And he lived within the timing of the Lord. Isaiah reminds us in chapter 40 and verse 31 in an oft-quoted of quoted verse, but those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings of eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. We wonder what in the world is going to happen next, and maybe we, we look at the conditions we find around us. We see the viruses, we see tensions, we see political unrest, we see world conflicts, we see a lot of things around us, don't we? And it can get pretty depressing and overwhelming. I don't know about you, but I'm tired of opening up, I don't receive the physical newspaper anymore, but opening up the newspaper and the first half of the newspaper is all about a virus and then political unrest. And I just think, man, is there not any good news in the world anymore? And if, you're, if your sports team hasn't won, then the whole, whole newspaper's bad. I think it's because we think things ought to happen our way. But David recognizes and gives us a great example of one who depends upon and waits on the Lord. Yes, his desire was there and he knew. But he let the Lord have his way. Let him have his way with you. We'll sing a song of encouragement this morning. If someone needs to respond, we're glad to assist you and help you. We would encourage that. Don't go away from here thinking, man, I, I had something I needed. If you need to come this morning, the opportunity and the blessing is ours to share that with you.